Hillbilly Horror Stories presents Eerie Encounters. Tyson came into my life five years ago as part of my new marriage. Although quite intimidating to look at, this 130-pound Rottweiler didn't take long in winning the hearts of my children and me. We gave in to his demands for toast and jelly in the mornings when we were rushing to get to work or school, and we learned to tolerate being followed about our tiny house by our oversized shadow. We often laughed when people hesitated when they first met Tyson, knowing he was most likely more afraid of them than they were of him. He did have a very vicious growl that he saved for strangers, but, but this often emanated from him while he was hiding behind a door. The only time that Tyson seemed overly protective was if I was sleeping and someone came up the stairway that led to our bedroom. He often posted himself right in front of my bedroom door as though he were standing guard until he decided it was safe for him to retreat for the rest of the night into our room. Tyson would stay close by me while I worked in the house. If I spent too long ignoring him while working on the computer, he would come over and knock my hands off the keys with his head and rest his head in my lap. He never quite figured out that his hulking size didn't make for a good lapdog. And if I attempted to watch TV or read, eventually he tried to crawl into my lap. I attempted to push him off and usually gave up when he turned his sad, big brown eyes on me with that look. I had to admit I loved him as much as he loved me. He often tried to sneak up on our bed after we fell asleep to nuzzle in next to me. Tyson was content just to be as close as he could to us at all times. I tripped over him many times on my way up the hallway in the middle of the night. With his large size, it was hard not to stumble over him at least once a day in our narrow hall leading to the bedrooms. The inconvenience and the stubbed toes were all worth the unconditional love we found in this gentle giant, though. As the years went by, Tyson became nearly completely crippled with arthritis. And in July of 2005, at the age of 13, Tyson fell down the stairs and we couldn't get him to walk. My husband and son carried him on a blanket and we nursed him all day. When there was no change, we took him to the vet. We had put off the trip there earlier because we all knew that this was the end for our beloved friend. After examining him, the vet said that his hips had deteriorated so badly there was nothing left and little hope for any sort of recovery at his age. My husband, son, and daughter all gathered there in the reception room where they brought me the papers to sign to put Tyson to sleep. I stood with the pen poised, putting off writing my signature that would seal his fate. A little girl who had two very rambunctious terriers with her was standing nearby and asked, Where's your dog? I found it difficult to answer her as I felt the lump forming in my throat. Her father realized what was happening and hurried her to a seat across the lobby with her new pups. I stared back at the release form that would allow the vet to put my darling Tyson out of his pain, and I felt like a traitor. I thought, how could we let him die? A voice in my head also questioned, how can we let him suffer? Tears were spilling. I took a deep breath and I signed the papers with the stipulation that we be allowed to see him for a moment alone before he was put down. I remember going into that room where he was lying and thinking about how much he hated going to the vet. Unlike the other trips that he would often take in my van, he would get anxious on the ride to the vet 
and start carrying on in the car as if he intuitively knew where we were heading. Yet that day, he only lifted his head once and looked at me with resignation. I think he realized his time had come. I looked down on my dear friend lying in the gurney, and I realized that he looked as weak and helpless as a newborn pup. He was just a shell of what he once had been. I cupped his head in my hands and told him that there wasn't going to be any more pain for him, and that we loved him very much. I told him that there would be people there in heaven who would watch over him till we were together again. He put his paw on my face, and he licked my tears. Even in his weakened state, he was still trying to console and protect me. My daughter, Jessie Lynn, and my 20-year-old son, J.J., were both in tears as they said their goodbyes. My husband's shoulders were slumped, and tears filled his eyes as he watched and reluctantly came over to bid farewell to Tyson. Once we left the room, a nurse almost immediately came back out to tell me that Tyson had passed. She brought me his leather collar, which I held all the way home. My heart broke when we arrived home and found our other dog, Chloe, had firmly planted herself in the window looking for Tyson, who had been her surrogate father since the day that she arrived in our new home as a pup. She cried and paced through the house for several days looking for him and not understanding. The hardest part came when my youngest son, Brett, who adored Tyson most of all, came home from a visit with his dad and we had to break the news to him. Each of us felt an emptiness in our home that nothing could feel. He was as much a part of our family as any person could be, and we mourned our loss. About one month later, I woke in the middle of the night and headed down the hall to the bathroom. Blurry-eyed from sleep, I brushed against the large body that I'd often found there and instinctively whispered, Tyson, move! I heard him shift out of the way and give one of his trademark chuffs, indicating that he was disturbed from a nice dream, and I continued on to the bathroom down the hall. Once I reached the bathroom, I was fully awake and realized that I couldn't have bumped into Tyson. Tyson was gone. I checked for our other dog, Chloe, but she was lying in bed with Brett with the door closed. I was unnerved by the experience, and I decided not to mention it for obvious reasons. The following night, my husband said that he could have sworn he saw Tyson in the hall. I looked at him and I laughed, deciding not to mention what happened just yet. Over the course of the next few weeks, though, we saw, heard, or brushed against what we thought was Tyson while in the upstairs hallway. Had he come back to watch over us as we slept, as he often did in his life? We may never know the answer, but we have gained great comfort from the thought that even in death, he had not forgotten us. The story was sent by Michelle Morgan. The house on Essex Street seemed perfect. It was close to the school where I worked, and it had a large fenced-in yard for my miniature collie, Ruby. But best of all, the monthly rent was considerably lower than the other places in the area. Immediately after moving into the house, I noticed a change in Ruby's behavior. She acted nervous and would often hide under my bed, trembling and refusing to come to me when I'd call her name. I figured that maybe she just needed some time to adjust to her new surroundings, even though we had moved several times in the past and she had never reacted in such a strange way. 
One night around 10 o'clock, I woke to the whimpering and scratching sounds coming from the kitchen. I went in to investigate and I found Ruby clawing at the door leading to the basement. What's the matter, girl? I asked. Is there something down there in the basement? Ruby let out a couple of small yelps and then put her nose to the bottom of the door as if she was picking up a scent. I decided to open the door and let the dog go down and explore the basement. As I unlocked the door and started turning the knob, Ruby started whining loudly and pacing back and forth. I had never seen her act so disturbed about anything before, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of her peculiar behavior. I opened the door, and before I even had a chance to switch on the basement light, Ruby bolted down the stairs as if she was chasing something. Within a matter of seconds, she had disappeared into the dank and musty darkness below. Almost immediately, she began growling. I switched on the light, and from the top of the stairs, I could see Ruby. Her attention was clearly focused on something on the floor. I went downstairs, and upon closer inspection, it turned out to be a faded brown stain resembling half of a butterfly. The only other time that I had been in the basement was when the landlady showed me around the house, but I didn't recall seeing any stain on the floor then. Perhaps I was just too excited about the house to notice. Well, a few days later, I went down to the basement to do some laundry, and Ruby followed me. I saw her stop dead in her tracks as soon as she got near the stain. She let out a low growl and began to slowly back up. She then started barking wildly and darting back and forth. I took her upstairs and she finally calmed down. That weekend, I went downstairs with a scrub brush and some scouring powder and attempted to remove the stain from the floor. I scrubbed and scrubbed and even tried different cleansers, but nothing would take the stain out. I gave up and started back up the stairs when all of a sudden something shadowy darted past me. Startled and a bit spooked, I looked around, but there was nothing there. I hurried upstairs and quickly locked the basement door behind me. The following day when I arrived home from school, I was startled to find the basement door wide open. It had been locked when I left the house that morning. I called to Ruby, but she did not answer. The house felt icy cold, and the eerie silence became overwhelming. Fearing that someone had broken into the house while I was at work, I quietly tiptoed out through the back door and ran to a neighbor's house where I phoned the police. Within a few moments, they arrived on the scene, their guns drawn. They checked out my house from top to bottom. They found no signs of forced entry, and nothing seemed to be missing. I asked one of the officers if they had seen my dog, and he told me that they had. She was down in the basement, hiding behind the oil tank. After the police left, I phoned my landlord about having the locks changed. I also asked her about the stain on the basement floor which she told me made the hairs on my arm stand up. Her grandfather lived in that house in the 1930s, and he kept a Doberman as a watchdog and a family pet. One day, his dog went into a rage and attacked one of the children while they were playing in the yard. He took the dog down to the basement, chained it to the pipe, and then gave it a severe beating with a wooden leg from an old chair. The following day, when he went back down into the basement, he found the dog was dead. It was curled up and in a pool of blood, which left the stain on the floor. After hearing that, I told my landlady about Ruby's strange behavior and said, This is probably going to sound crazy to you, but I'm starting to think that the ghost of that Doberman is haunting the basement. She surprised me by saying that she didn't think that was crazy at all. In fact, she said her grandfather eventually became convinced that the dead dog's spirit wanted revenge. 
and he avoided the basement at all costs. She also told me that when she and her brother and sister were growing up in the house, they too had seen the fleeting shadow of a dog in the basement and would sometimes even hear a dog panting or growling. One day, her brother's friend from school was over playing hide-and-seek with them, and he claimed to have been chased up the basement stairs by a black dog that disappeared when it reached the top step. However, she wasn't sure if the story was true or if the boy just made it up in order to scare her and her sister. After our enlightening conversation, I returned to the basement and I drew a small circle around the bloodstain with a piece of white chalk. I sprinkled some salt and sage inside the circle, covering it with a small braided rug, and I prayed for the dog's restless spirit to find peace. I had never done anything ritualistic like that before, but it just felt like the correct thing to do at that time and under those circumstances. It seemed to have a positive effect because during the remaining three years that Ruby and I lived in that house, her behavior was normal, and there were no further incidents in the blood-stained basement. That story was sent from E.G. Grubner. It's close to Thanksgiving, so I thought I would share this story. In September of 1988, my husband and I, along with our six-year-old daughter, Stacy, moved into a rented three-bedroom Cape Cod-style house in a quiet residential neighborhood outside of Milwaukee. The first night we went to the house, we were awakened around 1 a.m. by the sound of our little girl sobbing loudly. I got out of bed and I went to Stacy's room to see why she was crying. I found her sitting up in her bed, clutching one of her stuffed animals and looking terrified. She told me that she had been frightened by the sight of a strange animal moving around in her room. She thought it was a large white cat with yellow glowing eyes, but she wasn't sure because it didn't have a tail. I reassured her that this was just a bad dream, then I sat with her until she went back to sleep. Well, a few days later, my husband had a strange experience while working downstairs in the basement. Something caught his eye, and when he looked up to see a large white cat with blood trickling from its nostrils peering at him from the basement window. In a matter of seconds, the cat's image faded away before his eyes. He felt sure that he had just imagined it, and he thought that our daughter's earlier bad dream about a white cat was purely coincidental. Well, several weeks passed without anything out of the ordinary happening in the house. Halloween arrived, and my husband and I took Stacy trick-or-treating around the neighborhood. As we returned home, we all spotted what appeared to be a white cat sitting in the upstairs window of Stacy's bedroom. My daughter immediately became terrified and said that she didn't want to sleep in her room anymore because she was afraid of the spooky cat. She was afraid that the cat would get her. So we checked Stacy's room for the cat but found nothing. My husband then searched the entire house from top to bottom. No cat. So we invited relatives over for Thanksgiving dinner. And I nearly choked on my food when one of my husband's elderly aunts asked him what our cat's name was. He told her that we didn't own a cat. She replied that that was odd because she was sure she had seen a cat in the hallway earlier when she went to freshen up in the bathroom. I asked her if the cat that she saw just happened to be a big white cat with a missing tail. She gave me a bewildered look and laughed. The cat that she had seen was a little striped tabby. She added that it was a 
shy puss because it took off running as soon as she saw her. We all laughed and joked about the mystery cat, but somehow I couldn't help but to feel in my heart that there was something disturbing about these strange cat sightings. One day I was outside chatting with our next door neighbor, Connie. She was filling me in all about the neighborhood gossip, so I asked her what the previous tenants who occupied our house were like. She replied that the Housers were a nice older couple who were quiet and mostly kept to themselves. I then asked Connie if they had any cats. She shook her head no. She said that they had a couple of pet birds, parakeets or canaries, she wasn't sure which. She then said, it's a funny thing that you mentioned cats because the family that lived there before the Housers had a teenage son who was nothing but a little monster. He got his kicks from torturing stray cats. I felt nauseous as she told me a story about her husband, who once caught this obviously disturbed young man trying to hang a kitten by its neck from the clothesline in the backyard. That night, I lit a candle and said a special prayer for all the cats and kittens that had been tortured and killed at the hands of that cruel boy who once lived in the house that my family now called home. It must have done some good because we continued to live in that house for another year and a half without experiencing any further incidents of feline hauntings. I'm now convinced that that's what they were. A story was sent from Mary Beth Reisner. You have been listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories Presents Eerie Encounters. If you have an eerie encounter that you would like read on the show, please send it to hillbillyhorrorstories at gmail.com.